and welcome to the Fulham Focus podcast as we turn our attention to Leeds United Friday night under the lights, a game which is arguably the start of our favourable run-in to finally escape the bottom three. Although an international break awaits us after this match, this is by no means a write-off, it is in fact the MOT to our salvation. God, I'm dramatic. With me are Baldo and Stato discuss all this, and in between, a special player focus of Steve Malbronk with Frenchie, Morgs and former Fulham player, that is Collins John. Let's do it. Fulham. Right, guys, Leeds United, the most entertaining team in football. Bielsa, the mythical, magical Bielsa, Dumbledore on a bucket. Now, look, before we get into that, I'd like to have your Leeds memories really quickly, just for nostalgia's sake. Baldo, have you got any special memories you can think of Leeds with that you strike a bell at all? Um, none that I don't think I've been to any games where we've played Leeds. For the life of me, I don't think I've been to. So the only memory I can have was during that magical time towards the end of the 16-17 season, where it was pretty much the birth of the Leeds are falling apart again. thing. It was fantastic because we were on the outside of the playoffs for, for a little bit, and then Leeds started to crumble, and then we had that game away at Huddersfield. And, yeah, it was all absolutely, it was all absolutely fantastic. And then, obviously, we jumped up in the last... Uh, in the last couple of games, obviously we didn't get promoted, but just that 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 couple of weeks where yeah. Leeds are falling apart again went around the nation was pretty fun. You loved it. You loved tweeting that. Uh, I think it was a Family Guy qu- uh, clip, wasn't it, of uh, Meg holding oh, up a speaker of Leeds no, falling apart? No, that's American. That's American Dad. I know what you mean. Yeah. I, oh yeah. Well, I well no, hang on. I brought that up um, during last year, so the years they got promoted, so it, it definitely right. backfired on me. But it was still it's still a fun time. Yeah, it's a shame you can't really do that this season. I mean, I think we'd all kill to be in Leeds position. But we'll get on to that. Stato, any memories of Leeds that you want to talk about quickly? Yeah, I'm just trying to think of, you know, Fulham and Leeds when, when we played. And it's kind of, I don't want to say tarnished, but it's I just have memories of last season, to be honest. Um, obviously, beating them at the cottage, the two on our goals, I think. He definitely got one. I can't remember if he mm-hmm. got two. Um, and then obviously losing kind of quite disastrously at Elland Road um, during Project Restart, which I think was the second game into the restart, I think. Um, and yeah, it's just kind of the recent memories from last season. And, you know, we, we, we were kind of close to them at one point, but, you know, in the end, they kind of just pulled away, unfortunately. But hey, we both got up, so it's, it's all good. Yeah, we did. We did. And uh, what a season they're having. Paul, I mean, funnily enough, we all sort of decided where we think certain promoted teams or just general teams in the Premier League would stand at the end of the season. You were adamant, strong to the core of saying that Leeds are definitely not going down. In fact, you think they'll be mid-table. They'll be in the sort of position that we hoped we would be uh, in the 18-19 season when we were very arrogant and thinking Sean Michael Serry was basically the Messi of the Premier League. What, what, what are your, I mean, you must be feeling quite uh, smug about that. I mean, I mean, somewhat smug. I would much rather if you know. I'd feel a lot better if we were if we were safe with them, so I could you know it's still a little yeah. bit of nerves hang on. But basically, surrounded by you know uh, my work last year, I had to cover Leeds United quite a lot, so I had to watch a lot of their games, and it just came to the fact of. And it really sort of uh, struck me when they played Arsenal in the FA Cup. Uh, they lost one 0 but for the first forty-five to sixty minutes, they played them off the park. They were so great, I, I remember, knew, yeah. Yeah, they were absolutely fantastic. So it, it just sort of struck me then. Right, if Leeds can get if Leeds can go up and they can produce this performance, obviously a few tweaks, because that was during the stage where Bamford was or what well, they still do, but Bamford needs like ten shots to score a goal, whereas every other forward needs five, sort of thing. If they can just tweak that problem, they'll get enough results. They'll scare enough of the big teams like they have this year. Gave Liverpool a front on the first day of the season. They've drawn with Arsenal, drawn with Man City, drew with, Lee, uh, drew with Chelsea a couple of weeks ago. 
they'll get enough of them results and they'll pick off the teams in and around them. They've had a couple of mm. bad results, which I which I didn't see coming, like five nil away at Palace or four nil something along those lines. But over the course of the season, they will get enough points where you know come this time they're absolutely safe and can start you know planning towards next season. I may have gone a little bit too far ahead when I said they were an outside chance of the European spots, but mm. over, but overall overall I just say uh, there are, there's a lot of people that didn't buy into the Marcelo Bielsa myth sort of thing and thought, oh, it's over. he's overrated, he's flawed genius. So I just need they'd be absolutely fine. Like, so I, t- I take no credit in it because I'm pretty sure I'm not the only person that said it. And I, as I say, I do I do wish that I was saying this from a position where we were 12th and they were 11th, so I could take a little bit more satisfaction in it. Yeah. <laughs> what are your thoughts on it, Stato, mate? I mean, Bielsa's doing a, a cracking job, isn't he? I mean, it, it just everyone keeps saying how this is actually a sort of a the championship team, he just makes all the players better, arguably. Would you say that's any truth for that? Um, I'd, I'd say there's an element of truth to that. I mean, there's no there's no denying that Bielsa's done a fantastic job and, you know, Leeds are very uh, entertaining to watch. They, you know, they're kind of almost a breath of fresh air in this league. Yeah. Um, but, you know, at the same time, we've seen this a lot. We've seen this a lot in recent years or just in Premier League years gone by where, you know, a team gets promoted and they have a fantastic first year. Um Case in point, Sheffield United last year. Um, I think they finished eighth or ninth in the end, and you know, look at them now. And um, Wolves yes. from a couple of years before that. Um, I did a quick stat actually looking at it. So at the moment, Leeds, you know, they're averaging one point three points per game. All that Wolves and Sheffield United team—they're the only kind of teams in recent history who've been promoted that have actually done better than them. You know, in their first season back in the Premier League. So yeah, you know, they're fair play to Leeds. They're doing well. Um, for them, it's kind of a case of can they continue it next year? You know, second season syndrome is a big thing. Um, as mentioned, Sheffield United, they came top one year and they came ninth um, last year. And now look at them, they're kind of destined for the drop. So it'll be interesting to see how they get on next year. And, you know, hopefully we can be in the Premier League with them. That'd be nice. That'd be really nice. I mean, Paul, do you think we can go into this game with confidence after the last time we faced Leeds as a team? We, we definitely, obviously, were a lot better defensively than we were that day, weren't we? Aren't we? Well, you, well, you can make the argument that we're a completely different team just yeah. because of the way we were. Because that was, you know, the last remnants. And I was saying this to a uh, to a Leeds page I had an interview with. You know, that, te- that team, it was basically what we expected of. You know, Leeds United were all out attack, but susceptible in defence. We were still hanging on to the last dregs of a very bad, you know, of the promotion team that was still the team that got us relegated. It was still, you know, Adoy and Ream and Joe Bryan and all that sort of lot. So yeah. we knew that we were always going to have problems at the back because it was the same bad Premier League defence that we had previously. And we knew that we were okay in defence, uh, in attack rather, because we had Mitrovic and Bobby Reed and all those guys who we went on to score in that game. So that game sort of went the way most of us would have expected. Whereas now it's a completely different, it's a completely different ball game. We've, you know, strengthened at the back, you know, fantastically, you know, barring last week against Man City. But, you know, more often than not, we're not conceding. And if we do, it's only by, it's only the one goal. But at the same time, we're struggling in attack. So I don't expect it to be, I know we're going to get into the prediction, but yeah, we can yeah. go into a game with a lot more confidence because I don't think we're going to be as threatened or as panicked as we were, as we were in the first game. What were, what are your thoughts on this, Stato, mate? And just general feelings about the weight of this game. We were talking on WhatsApp, and I was actually that Leeds is going to set the tone uh, for the next two games coming up. But in fact, as you rightly mentioned, there's an international break. So it's not a write-off necessarily, this game, by any means. It's very much 
it's very much important, but just like to know your thoughts. Yeah, so it's a strange one, the fact that obviously we want to win and put up the momentum, but, you know, that momentum can just end because, you know, we play them and then two, we go away for two weeks whilst, you know, international games can take place. Likewise, if we lose, it won't start a war or anything. It gives us a chance to reset if that happens. Mm. I think, you know, given where Leeds are in the, in, in the table, what type of team they are, this is kind of the bread and butter in the Premier League, the games that we need to be getting points against. You know, we... We've just come out of a torrid three-game run against you know three of the top six teams, and we got an impressive three points from that. Now, you know, our next three fixtures, these are the games where we have to be picking up points if we want to stay in this league. And you know, everyone's been saying that we're too good to go down, we belong in this league, and you know, I agree with that. But the only way to prove that is by getting results in games like this. And you know, I you can look back to the last game against Leeds, but we've evolved and we've come so far since then. It's more kind of where we are now and how this team can perform against this Leeds side now. Mm. I, I find it, it does feel like I've got a lot of hope for this game, but at the same time, because as you've both mentioned quite rightly, is that I feel like our attack isn't as good as it was against Leeds when we last played them. That's the sort of conundrum that we're in. Would you say that's a fair thing to say, Zach? It's strange. I think when we played Leeds um, at Ellen Road in the season, it was more, okay, Leeds were playing their style and we had to react to that and we kind of had to go a bit gung-ho and it was just a bit of a crazy game, to be honest, like scoring three goals but losing, Mitrovic scoring a penalty, uh, Bobby Reid scoring. It was all just a bit carnage. And mental, I think this yeah. time, of, yeah, I think this time around, it's more kind of us playing our way, our established way that we developed this season you know Leeds they may go a bit gung-ho but we've got a very solid defence they're going to, need to try and break us down which you know we we've proved it's it'll be it'll be a difficult task for them so you know I think it'll be a kind of a very different game that we're going to and we're going to approach it in a different way than we did last time around I think yeah I mean it is possession football versus possession football I mean according to you know who scored.com Leeds style of players attacking down the right so potentially Rafinha there uh consistent first 11 playing in their own half uh you know, they like to counter-attack. They create lots of chances for individual skill. These sort of mumbo-jumbo stats from who scored, for instance. But they are defensively quite frail as well. I mean, we can actually go at them. I mean, for instance, uh, they're terrible, I think. Isn't there a stat, stat about that? I mean, they're set pieces. They're actually quite weak. But unfortunately, we're not very good at set pieces ourselves, I don't think. Yeah, yeah. So, um, they've... Um... It's a case of that they've conceded 14 goals from set pieces this year, which is more than any other team has done in the league. Um, wow. I mean, if there were there was a time for us to to score a goal from a set piece, it would be this one. Um, for kind of a comparison, showing how how good our defence is, um, we've only conceded four goals from set piece this whole season, which I'm quite hard to believe because I just remember us scoring conceding set pieces like every five minutes earlier in the season when we had a terrible defence. But <laughs> apparently we've only conceded four compared to their 14. So, you know, we, if ever there was a game for Anderson or Tosin to kind of get their first goal, I think this could be it. Yeah, as Stata was saying, 1.3 points per game at the moment. Uh, goals, scored per, uh, goals scored per game, 1.5. Con- Goals conceded per game, 1.6. Ball, is there anything else from Stato Stats that like, just a bit highlighted to you from Leeds? Yeah, there's one that's uh, striking out to me, and um, it all goes back to what I was saying, is you know we're a lot more organised than we were in the first half of the game. It's that 66% of their goals that they've conceded in away games have come in the first half of the game. And I think that's going to be incredibly crucial, because as we've, you know, as we've said, we're not the most attack-minded, or at least the most attack-potent of teams. So... Yeah. It's it's not going to be it's not going to be a well no 
touch wood, it's not going to be a four-three thriller in any in any sense because we're a lot more defensively organised as well. So we should be able to keep them safe, or at least keep them at arm's length. So I think if we can get the first goal, I think that really puts us in good stead. So if we can get, you know, if we can get off, to, you know, we mentioned the set pieces. If we can get a corner in the fir- in the first half, get a goal from that, then we're really in, then we're probably in good stead for for the rest of the game because that's you know. Because then we can just we can just sit back, and we know that Leeds like to go all out attack, and they will bring ten players if they want to. There's this yeah. great image when they were playing Aston Villa, I think it was, when they were four one up or four nil up or whatever in the last minute, and they were still sending five players forward for a counter attack because they just don't <sighs> stop. So if they bring those guys forward, you got the likes of Anderson there who can distribute a pass perfectly, just pop it over the top for the likes of Caviar and Lookman, and we can give that and we can give that defense. Um, a whole host of nightmares. So I think if we can get the if we can get the first goal, it's going to be absolutely crucial. Well, it's funny. Also, before that, you were mentioning um, their away form and you know with conceding goals. Am I right in saying that Leeds haven't won away against the London team yet? Is that right? Did you say that the other day, Baller? Yeah, it's one of those um, you know curses or jinxes or you know if you if you if you believe in those things, which I certainly do, I'm a very superstitious guy. But for some reason, Leeds just cannot seem to get anything um, when they come to London. I've just pulled up this article here from uh, Transfer Tab, which was dated no seventh uh, of November two thousand twenty, but they still haven't done it. So the fact um, Leeds haven't won away in London in three years. So this goes back to twenty sixteen, oh maybe twenty seventeen. They haven't managed to win a game in London. So if you are one of those people that believes in curses and streaks and jinxes and all that lot, like I am, then you should really be um, hoping that they, you know, this has been the season for ending streaks. I mean, we hadn't won at Goodison Park ever or ever in the league. I forget. I've lost. I lost all track of that. That's when we actually won. We hadn't won at Everton in a long time, basically. And we managed to win that. So if there's a, if there's there is a year that streaks are going to end it might be it might be this one but if you are someone that doesn't believe in that then you maybe just get a little bit a little bit more hope mm. it just depends how much they bring the fire really i see they've ranked second in terms of tackles per game they I mean they 18.8 tackles per game and fulham are 12th um in the table on this with only 14.7 tackles per game so they could they like to counter attack don't they stato i mean um you know, as Border was saying, there they can five. You know, they can keep on attacking a wave after wave after wave. But I've noticed there's a stat here about how many goals they score from outside the box, which we could probably be worried about, even if we're we're sort of quite well drilled. What was that? Yeah, so you know, I don't think you need to see stats just just to you don't you don't need to look at stats to see how kind of expansive and counter-attacking this Leeds teams play, but. Um, so, yeah, um, obviously you don't need to look at stats to see how kind of expansive and counter-attacking they play. Um, but they do score a lot of goals outside of the box. In, ter- in fact, you know, only, I think it's Man City have scored more goals out of the box than them this year. Um, so, you know, they've ranked right. second in the league. They've scored nine goals outside of the box, which, you know, could be quite worrying for us. Um, you know, I'm confident that our defensive midfield will kind of shut any of those types of chances down. Um, how many, sorry quite- to interrupt you, how many goals have we scored outside the box this season? <laughs> well, we scored two, which puts us 19th. And I can, I can remember them. The first one is that Tom Kearney go against Palace, the consolation. And the other one is the Ina Screamer against West Brom, wasn't it? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, You'd think Cavalero would be scoring more goals from distance. He was very good at it in the championship. But maybe that's just that's just a, a league thing. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's no secret that kind of our midfield aren't contributing enough goals at the moment. Um, we're not doing enough shots at the moment, really, to kind of score goals outside the box so 
Um, it's a bit of a worrying stat for us, but you know, hopefully against a team that is ex as expansive um, and counter seconds lead, there'll be opportunities that will come for us and there'll be gaps in the defence which will you know, kind of give us the opportunity to hopefully get a few shots away. Well, it's interesting because, you know, we were second to City for um, the amount of goals that we're letting in. So we're very defensively sound. But also, you've already mentioned they're second to City for one stat. But I, I see they're, they're second to City for another. There are a lot of lefties in the team, aren't there? Yeah, I just thought this is kind of a bit of a bizarre weird. stat. So, um, you know, they've scored 43 goals this year and 23 of them, so that's over half, um, have come from their left foot. And I'm just trying to, I mean... I think Bamford's left-footed, but I, I can't. I'm not 100 sure. I know Rafinha is, um, but maybe they just have a lot of left-footed players. But it's just quite a uh, quite a unique stat for them. Yeah, that's really weird. Well, look, that's really good. We'll move on to this in a minute. We'll talk to someone who is actually right-footed. Take it away. We've got Matt McClare and we have got Morgs, and we have got the legend that is Collins John to discuss Steed Malbron. Steed, take it away, Frenchy. Fulham. Right, yes, it's the next in the series of our In Focus chats. This week, it's Steve Malbronk, who, amongst many other things, scored the winner against Leeds United at Ellen Road towards the end of our first season in the Premiership. I've got Morgs with me, plus I'm delighted once again to be joined by a man who played with Steve Malbronk at Fulham. It's Collins John. How are you doing, Collins? Hi, good evening. You OK? Yeah, very well. And you? Yeah, very good. Thank you. Good, good to have you back on. Right, well, in August 2001, Steve Malbronk signed for Fulham from Lyon for a fee of 4.5 million. We'd just been promoted to the Premiership for the first time with a ready-made squad. And in addition to Malbronk, that summer, we also brought in the likes of Sylvain Legvinsky, John Harley, and of course, the high-profile signing of Dutch international keeper Edwin van der Sar. As an unknown quantity, is it fair to say, Morgs, that Steve signing for the club almost slipped under the radar until we saw how good he was in person? Yeah, definitely. He, um, I just remember that summer before it all kicked off. We, I remember going up to, I think it was Celtic when we had that preseason up there, and we'd only signed Abdes Wadu by that point, and we were kind of everyone was expecting this massive deluge of signings because obviously we were coming up and we were absolutely minted, and this was going to be the start of something great. And then it's just like this one player is just like, oh, what's happening? And then. The uh, it was almost like you know this big sort of waterfall of players started coming in. Obviously, Edwin uh, was the first one that sort of um, just uh, got everyone a bit shocked. And then yeah, you said it's sort of like Steed was just one of the few players that we signed, and obviously not really having heard of him. Um, and the transfer fee obviously was significant back then, four and a half million. But it's uh, you know it wasn't a household name, so I didn't really at the time know what to make of him. Uh, but as you said, until you saw him play, you go, hang on a minute, we've got a bit of a tasty player here. I remember it being Crystal Palace away um, in, a, again, a friendly um, that, that pre-season. And that was where the whole Steed chant was born. And, <laughs> but he, he, looked, he looked absolutely superb against them. And we thought we've got a player here. But you're right. In this day and age, 4.5 million doesn't really get you much at all, does it? That would get you a really bang average player. So back then, transfer fees were a little bit more contained. And 4.5 million, yeah, he, he was a, a real steal at that price, to be honest, especially for the kind of value that we got out of him. 
Um, Collins, you signed for Fulham in January 2004, so missed out on the first two and a half seasons of his time at Fulham. So we'll come back to that in a moment. But what was he like as a teammate? Because to me, he always seemed like he would be a very quiet man, but a man who let his performance do the talking. Is that fair? Yeah, I think you're spot on. You know, Steve had, um, was a player. You hardly kind of heard of him. He was very quiet. But again, um, in the pitch, he was he was magic. He was... I remember the first training when I um, actually had with Fulham, I was just like, oh, who is this player? Quiet. But he was he was outstanding. Probably one of the best players I've played with uh, in the Fulham shirt. Yeah, I think, I think that's perfectly understandable. And he seemed to have this kind of intrinsic understanding with Lewis Boamorte as well. And as part of my research for, for coming on and talking about him, I was just watching some of his goals and they always seemed to set each other up. There was It was either Boa... Um, played Mal Bronk in, or Mal Bronk played the killer pass through to Boa Morte. Um, th- those two, I mean, you didn't, you just missed out on playing with Louis Sahar because he just left before you joined to sign for Manchester United. But those two really seemed to step up as the senior players for Fulham, didn't they? Boa Morte and Steve Mal Bronk. I, I, I fully understand because they always uh, spoke uh, French together. And uh, like I said, you know, Steve was a very quiet person. He always spoke with the French players. And again, there was not disrespect to him to another players, but he was very, you know, quiet, up to himself, you know, spoke a few bits of piece of English, but his English was not the best at the time. Um, so he always spoke with the French, uh, with French speaking uh, players. But yeah, he was, um, he was sensational. And um, so also, also, I think the connection came because he always, after the training, when I lunch with, uh, with uh, Boamorte and, with Alan Goma and, you know, with uh, Jetu, with all these French players. So, yeah, definitely yeah, they had a connection. And most of the time, Steve played all 10 or the right winger and obviously Boa played on the other side. So, yeah, they had a little connection going on. And, um, yeah, he was, like I said before, he was... I've never saw anybody turn that quick as Steed. I mean, his turn was just like... And it doesn't really matter. And, you know, sometimes you might think he's small and he's not that strong on the ball, but... He had a big fight as well, you know. He was a really chalky guy, and yeah, he was. And believe it or not, the first few yards he was he was pretty fast as well. He had this burst of pace, and yeah, he was he was an outstanding guy and a wonderful player. That's quite it's quite interesting you say that about his size, though, because I read an article today about him, and the one description it was he was described him as compact. And it's like, that's probably a perfect description of what he was because you yeah, look at was, him and he, he wasn't, was. he was quite chunky. You know, he, sort of, yeah. he had a, you know, yeah. he, you could see he had the strength, but he wasn't a big character. Uh, oh, sorry, he was big, uh, he wasn't a big uh, person. So it's sort of, um, but you could tell how he didn't get muscled off the ball. He had a good low center of gravity and sort of, yeah. um, you know, that really helped his play, I think, you know, from my amateur knowledge of the, <laughs> of the footballers. No, he was he was sensational, very very good. Um, also, after training, we always stayed, you know, stayed and did some uh, shooting drill. Every ball was just target, target, target. He was, but a nice guy as well, you know. If he, if he asked him something and if you he, he spoke to him, he always had a joke. But like I said, he won't he won't just come to you and have a conversation. You really have to go to him. But um, he was a wonderful guy in the pitch as well, you know. If you ask him the ball or, you know, he say, hey, Steve, pass me the ball. He would be like, oh, sorry, I didn't see you. And it was always polite. He was always, he, he just loved his football. He was, he was a wonderful, wonderful person. Fantastic. 
Morgs, let's come back to you. We'll just go back to those those earlier kind of days before Collins signed for Fulham. Um, in our first season in the Premier League, he missed just one match and scored eight goals from midfield. We spoke about this on a recent podcast when we discussed ex-players we could bring back to help the current side out and pointed out that a return like that from a midfielder this season would see us much further up the table. But he also weighed in with eight assists too that season. I can't remember a player like him for Fulham, a player who was so skillful and could either play behind the strikers or on the right, score all sorts of goals and go past players too. Can you? I'm trying to think now, but uh, no, I think um, he was kind of like an early incarnation of Moussa Dembele in that sense. You know, he would get the ball and maraud through, you know, the you know, the midfield and sort of towards the centre-backs. But he just always looked so in control. There was nothing ever rushed about him. He was, it was very French <laughs> it was about him. And it was, um, you know, he, there was that certain sort of, it was that style about his play. And sometimes it would look unspectacular. But then if you look at how, you know, the sort of, you know, look at it closely, you would see, no, that that's a gift. That's not just something he's trained on. That is a natural talent and obviously, you know, work on it on the training pitch. But you've got to have that, uh, you know, the, the natural ability in order to be able to be that sort of player. And we weren't used to, I mean, we obviously had some great players in Division One. You know, we were very um, fortunate to see some of the footballers that we did at that level who would have made it in the premiership as well. But when he came on, it was another step up. And, you know, there were very few players of that quality um, in the league, really, maybe outside the sort of top four. Um, But, you know, he was one of those uh, special players to watch. And, you know, Mm. we've had those over the time of the club and we've managed, you know, we've, you know, even if you're sort of been watching Fulham for decades, we've always had sort of, uh, you know, one player here and there who is a, a special talent. And he was certainly one of those at the time. Collins, I mean, you, you spoke a moment ago about how he was very quiet, unassuming, and you had to go to him um, to, to get any sort of conversation out of him. As somebody who is expecting to link up with him on the pitch, how does that work? How do you build that relationship with him? Yeah, you know, some players, you don't really need to have a conversation. You know, he understands hmm. the game in and out. Very intelligent, very... His vision was unbelievable. He knew exactly where the ball was going to go before he got it. So... Um, and to be honest, I was a player who always liked to play it on the on the shoulder of the defense. So my my run was always behind the defenders, and you can always pick me out. And um, you know, and to be honest, sometimes you don't need to speak in football when you have qualities mm. and you know somebody's movement, you know exactly where to play the ball. So um, yeah, he was. That's why I think he was one of the top players I played with because surely Boamorti is up there as well, but he's, he was a different kind of a player. But yeah, Steed was so intelligent, so quick, and. It seems like always when he got the ball, he always had like one or two seconds to space because his first touch was always correct. And when you have that and uh, you're so dangerous with your, with, your, with your passing and shooting, then obviously it's always easy to play uh, play with him. So, um, yeah, it was a privilege to, um, to have just that kind of a player. It's interesting that you're sort of talking about how he was very reserved in his manner and how he sort of kept with the French speak players because sometimes you think that those little cliques in a football club and this is certainly from um, an outside perspective would be kind of detrimental to team spirit but if a player is in these cliques and he's comfortable then then I imagine it's sort of better for his style of play 
that he's yeah. actually confident, he's happy. And when he's happy, even if he may not be going out and spending time with the whole squad, then yeah. he's he's happy and he'll play with a much more, um, you know, a relaxed style, which is obviously much better for his game and better for everyone around him. Yeah, correct. He was not like he was miserable around other players, but like I said before, he was just, like you said, he was comfortable with the French-speaking players and he had um, he had his ways of communicating with players and even ask him something, he was, he was not like he was moody and he'd give an answer, but he obviously you have to go to him and really start a conversation. And um, that was his own, his own way of, you know, feeling feeling happy in the team and yeah, he was a great guy, a, a bunch a bunch of players and a bunch of uh, the staff as well. He was never a problem. Always, you know, um, I remember we went to Columbus, I think, pre-season in 2005. Um, you know, uh, I, I remember we had a friendly game against the All-Star team. And after that, all, all of us went out. He had a dance and he, over the sod, he was speaking to everybody. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he... he, he, he Just he a couple of drinks had, in him and he was fine. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> he clearly had some banter as well. So, but like I said, he was more a quiet person. But, oh, wow. When he when he entered a pitch, man, he was he was dancing over the sod with a ball and, mm. you know, banging goals and giving assists. So, yeah, he was a wonderful player. What was his relationship like with Chris Coleman? Because I, I noticed when I was watching his a lot of his goals back, he often ran over to the bench to celebrate rather than going off with his teammates. He would always be over. And there were, there were a few goals that he scored where he went over and just gave Coleman a hug. Yeah, uh, he, um, he had a very special bond with, uh, with, uh, with the gaffer because the gaffer knew exactly how to, to motivate him. He knew as, he, even it was not many bad games he had, but even if he had a quiet game or he was quiet, the gaffer always seemed to say something to him when he kind of wake him up. So I think he always had a big um, connection with uh, with Cookie and uh, it's a great thing to see. So did he Very kind nice. of, he responded to man management as well as sort of, you know, being able to go on the pitch. He needed to be nurtured as opposed to just left to yeah, it almost. And, yeah, and also you guys uh, both said it actually. He had such a great connection with Boa. Boa was obviously the captain. So what Cookie most time did, he would pick Boa and let Boa be involved in the meeting with him, you know, so really explain him exactly what he wants from him. So he still always feel comfortable. So Cookie really took time to um, to make him understand. And that was a great thing. And I think Steve kind of really appreciate that and really respect the gaffer. I don't think Boa has ever forgiven me. We, we played in the game and he put me through on goal one-on-one -on -one with the keeper. And uh, completely fluffed my lines. You know? <laughs> so he must have been, <laughs> he'd been long retired and he'd given up running by that point. But I think, yeah, you know, when he sees how bad uh, non uh, non players of that stature, <laughs> stature are, highlight of, chemistry. Highlight of his career, mate. I'm sure. Oh, I mean, <laughs> I'm sure he still talks about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing that sticks out to me actually about about Steve Marbronk is how he became our regular penalty taker for a while, even though when the first opportunity to step up um, to take a penalty arose at a shootout at Rochdale, it was on 9-11 actually when we played in the um, in the League Cup, and he didn't take one and everyone thought that he was going to take one and, and, and he didn't step up, but we ended up winning that game anyway, but immediately after that he became our penalty taker and it's weird that he didn't take one in that shootout because I always felt really confident, Morgs, that whenever he stepped up, he was going to score. Whereas, you know, in this day and age, watching Fulham, it's a bit of a lottery, A, as to who's going to step up, and B, whether or not they're even going to hit the target, let alone score. 
Yeah, I mean, maybe the Rochdale keeper was a bit intimidating. I don't know. I'm, you know, people <laughs> from Rochdale can be a bit intimidating, I guess. Um, so, but maybe it's just, I don't know, maybe maybe he had a sore ankle or whatever. Maybe he just wasn't feeling quite right. And other players around him, he thought maybe it's a good chance for them to uh, have a go. But he, he's it, as a penalty taker, you just need to have a very calm demeanour. And he oozed that in his play generally. So it didn't surprise me that he was our penalty taker. I mean, if you took Sahar or Helgeson or whoever, Berbatov, you know, all those players, one of their uh, stars was a very relaxed, um, relaxed personality on the pitch. And so, you know, Steed was exactly that as well. So he never, did he ever miss? I don't know, but he, I I remember him scoring two in that game against Charlton um, in the Mm -hmm. cup. when He's got a hat trick. Um, That's, just it is one of those things. If you're relaxed, you won't get stressed out by the fact that you've got to try and um, put it away under pressure. So, did you ever fancy a penalty, Collins? I can't remember if you ever took one for Fulham or not. Yeah, I did. One in the cup. I missed that one. I guess Leighton Orient. Remember that? We lost two one at home. Did you? Oh man. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then, and then a week. And I remember Cookie hammered me in the, in the dressing room after the game uh, in front of everybody, and I was pretty upset about that. But um, hmm. but I knew why he was doing that, yeah. And uh, and and two weeks later we played Goodison. I took it again and I scored. So hmm. I went up to him. I said, "What, what do you what, say again? <laughs> what does what does a manager say if if you miss if you miss a penalty? Like I get it for um, Lookman after the West Ham game. I mean, even actually, you probably yeah. don't even know to, need to hammer him because at that point he knows, he knows what is. He knew what he's done. You don't need to rub it yeah. in. Uh, yeah, but what did but... he say to you for missing one? I mean, it's like. Yeah, but sometimes, you know, um, I was pretty, you know, I was pretty, um, I was a kind of a different character. So sometimes, you know, managers try to, you know, to, to get your emotion a little bit, like, you know, to fire it a little bit up, you know. So that's what I needed at the time. And I think, I don't think I had a, a good game at, uh, at the time as well. So he was just kind of like, pick me up and, you know, say, you have to play better. You know, obviously you missed the penalty as well. So, you know, you can't just turn up in games. You have to be better. And so you really got me firing again. And two weeks later, I took a penalty and I scored. So definitely the gaffer will say, well, that's my... Uh... <laughs> yes, yeah. Yeah. That's, he he probably uses that in interviews these days as well for his man management exactly. style. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I said to him, what did you say again? And uh, he liked that, actually. So uh... <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Immediate retribution. Nice one. Morgs, in 2002-2003, Jean Tagado lost his job after a disappointing second season in the top flight. Chris Coleman, who we just spoke about, took the job firstly on a temporary basis before eventually taking over full-time. Steve was our top scorer that season at Loftus Road with 13 goals. Have you got any standout memories that season? Uh, You're asking me 18 years later. That's not great. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I think that was... That was the season where we beat Spurs, wasn't it, at Loftus Road, when we came back from 2-0 down at half-time. Um, and I think he scored a penalty in that one, didn't he? He, he scored the equaliser. And that's still, to this day, the fav- my favourite game that I've been at live. Um, I wasn't, obviously, you know for a fact, I wasn't in the country when we played Juve or the, had the European run. And that's why you think we still did so well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I think that's kind of, that was one of my favourite moments. I think you know, the um, the FA Cup game where he scored the hat-trick as well was that season. And it's, you know, the Loftus Road days are one that, you know, people don't, 
sometimes don't talk about that fondly, but I think we played some great games there. I mean, we saw some brilliant football in those two years. And I can't remember if it was um, Bolton at home, first game of the season, when we turned them over 4-1, or if that was the season, uh, season after. But that was, I just remember that first half in that game. And it was, you know, all this is chat about Steed. I remember Bo was the one that sort of took the, stole the show on that day. But, you know, just some of the football we played there was great. And it was a, you know, it didn't last the whole time, but Steed was a, a very special part of that. So I think overall, as you know, we did score, he scored some great goals, set up a lot of uh, goals as well. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, not, not a bad couple of seasons, despite the fact we were playing in a, mm. uh, a tin shed. Quite. Well, speaking of Loftus Road, Collins, it was there that you were unveiled as a Fulham player to the crowd with John Collins, of course. <laughs> um, yeah. A few months later, we were there. Yeah, a few, a few months later, we returned to Craven Cottage. What did you think of the cottage the first time you played there? Yeah, obviously, I saw some pictures. Uh, you know, I did my research and I've asked around the players as well. And uh, um, yeah, I liked uh, Craven Cottage. You know, I liked the stadium. It got something, you know, English tradition about it. And um, but obviously, Loftus Road was great because you know I scored there against Blackburn the two the two goals and. We won that. I think we lost that game, but I scored two goals. And um, so Loftus Road was always a special place for me. You know, it welcomed me to an English football. But uh, in the end, you want to go home, and it was Craven Cottage. So for me to see it the first time was something special. I was like, you know, this is going to be my home for the next four or five years where I have to uh, score goals. And uh, yeah, it was a special feeling for me. And uh, I remember the first game we played at home. I can't remember who we played against, but. My family was in the stand and my mom was crying and, uh, you know, it was a very special, special moment. Very nice. Yeah, that that um, that Easter weekend where you got those two against Blackburn, you got the two against Leicester a couple of days before, hadn't you? It was just a crazy yeah. weekend. What a yeah, weekend. It was a cra- yeah, it was crazy. I remember <laughs> when I came on against Leicester, uh, Steve King told me, assistant, obviously, Kino, he said, um, he said, I, I don't know, I got a feeling you're going to score. And obviously when I scored, I put my shirt off and I went crazy. Yeah. And then I got two. And then I got two at the same day. And then two days later, I got another two. So that was yeah. like, I was like, okay. So the English Premier League, that is what it's all about, huh? So, uh, yeah. yeah. It's it was- easy, this. <laughs> when, uh, I should exactly. come here sooner. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Dutch league was so, hard. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, uh, yeah, it was such a great moment for me as an 18-year-old kid and, was really like wow, you know the, the my world as a pro footballer, as a professional footballer, as uh, I started, and uh, yeah, it was a great achievement for me at that time. Yeah, superb, superb. Let's just come back quickly to two thousand and three, Morgs, because of course in October that year we famously beat Manchester United at Old Trafford with goals from Lee Clark, Junichi Inamoto, and of course Steed, who got the second one. Probably one of our finest moments in our top flight history today as a club, for me, I think, as United were champions at the time. Were you there? Were you in the country? I can't remember. What, I, can't remember <laughs> I, I was actually, did. I was in my first few weeks at uni and I was yeah. down in Portsmouth and I uh, I got back. I'd been out in the afternoon. I got back and I was, um, I turned on uh, the old teletext and um, saw the score. I was just like, what's going on? What's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it was a shock having, um, you know, obviously seen us getting uh, uh, turned over at Old Trafford previously a few times. And, um, well, actually, I can't remember if that was, that was us. I can't remember if that was second or third season we were there, but I remember obviously being there for the first game of the Premier, Premiership season. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was just, looked at it. And then watching it on Match of the Day that night, 
um, and, or the Premiership, or whatever it was called. And it was one of those special games, wasn't it? Because we didn't, we didn't look like we just chanced it. We actually mm. put it. It was the, it's like the Liverpool game. Yes, they had, uh, you know, more possession when we when they were behind, but we deserved the win. We didn't just steal it. And it just uh, obviously, all the goals were great. And uh, it's kind of just it was one of those games where I just I wish I'd been there. But obviously we would have lost if I'd been there. Yeah, so. Exactly, yeah. it was for the best that you were you were just at the, <laughs> on the other end of the country. Perfect. Um, back to Manchester, actually. In April 2006, Collins, both yourself and Steve were on the score sheet in the win at Man City. It was our penultimate away game of a season where we'd not won once all season until until two late goals. I think you got one in the 84th minute, and then Steve got one in injury time. Um, do you remember that game? It was, it was, it was yeah. a real game. I loved it. I, rem- I, re- I remember every game at Man City because I've, uh, I've uh, always scored there. Every time I visited that stadium, I've scored there. So I don't know. Um, yeah, it was a great game, by the way. Great game. The atmosphere was spot on. Um, and sometimes as a footballer, when you, when you play a game, you just got feeling you're going to win this game. And uh, obviously, I knew we haven't never won there. So. Um, so for me to have that feeling we're going to win there was crazy. But just the, how the game went, just the fire and, and the desire we had that game, even though we, we came from behind, was such a great achievement to win actually the game. And second half, we played some wonderful football, great football. I remember Bournemouth was unbelievable that game. Um, I think he's the one who gave me that assist as well on my goal. So yeah, it was a great, great game. Yeah, we went behind because Richard, Richard Dunn, I think, scored for them. And I remember the Man City That's right. that. The Man City fans next to us were singing, what's it like to win away? And we're just dropping our heads. <laughs> <laughs> Another fucking away game where we've lost. <laughs> um, and then when you equalised, I, I was I was sat on the end of the row and I just came piling down towards you and you were just kind of stood there with your arms out, looking quite calm. And we're all in front of you going, come on! <laughs> Brilliant. And then when, when we broke away, because Man City were trying to win the game, they had a corner. And we broke away. I think it was you that broke away, actually, and played Boa in. And then Boa just played it to Steve. And Steve's first time, just bottom corner, superb. Absolutely brilliant scenes in the away end that day because, you know, yeah. we hadn't won away for so long. So just a just great, a great game. game. It was a great game. We got the, the away red shirt, uh, red jersey, didn't we? Yeah. The red jersey yeah. we had. Yeah, yeah. It was a great game. I loved that game. I just loved the stadium. So mm. for some reason, I always got there, always scored there. I just I just loved Men City that, back, to, back in the days. Such a great stadium to play. Um, yeah, it was a great win. It's a great win. Shortly after that, actually, that summer, Steed left to sign for Spurs. A um, few months later, after that, after that, he returned to the cottage as an opponent with Tottenham and was given quite a frosty reception. Collins, do you think getting booed every time he touched the ball would have phased him or privately upset him? Or do you think as a player, that's just part of the game you have to accept? I think kind of both. But no, Steed... Trust me, he doesn't. He doesn't even. Nah, he doesn't even blink. He doesn't. Doesn't even touch him. Don't get me wrong. No players like to be booed. Don't get me wrong, but he would not affect his game because that's just not his character. He was a very, very. When he played his football, he was so into it. Like, trust me, he wouldn't. And I, I don't even think he had a bad game at a game as well. So uh, no. Um, but then again, is it nice to get booed? It's part of the game, really, because yeah. the fans feel, you know, you kind of let the team down to to obviously to leave. So they don't they don't mind if you go to another team because at that at that point they just think about their own team. So they obviously they're disappointed. And obviously, to lose a quality of as as a steel as a player, 
he's always disappointing for any team. So I kind of understand the Fulham fans for booing him, but at the end of the day, it's never nice to get booed. But yeah, Steed was a was a great character. He, he didn't he didn't feel it. Trust me, knowing yeah. knowing him as a as, as a as a personnel, he doesn't even blink on it. He doesn't uh, he doesn't touch him. That's a shame. We were it's one of those to... things, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, trying to put him off, aren't we? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's always, it's always a shame when a player leaves under a bit of a cloud. I mean, there was, you know, there are certain players that leave and they go with well, you know, well wishes and whatnot. And it's sort of, but it was in this case, I think, because he said he wanted to run his contract down. He got, you know, got sold because otherwise we would have lost him on a free. It was, it just left a bit of a sour taste. And I think after so many years, you know, that's that's what does it. That's what sort of. Uh, you know, turns applause to booze in games like that. If he came up to you in the street, or if you walked past him in the street as a Fulham fan, you'd want to shake his hand and say thank yeah. you for everything you did. But during a game, you know, he's playing for the team that he you know, that he left you for. Which it's like you know, if you were meeting, you know, you saw your ex with a new guy, you'd probably boo her. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> if she came up to you and she was on her own, then it probably wouldn't be as bad. Uh, you probably just say hi, have a bit of a chat about how things were going. Um, but uh, yeah, so Steve was with his uh, with his new uh, with his new other half. <laughs> so. Brilliant! Oh dearie me! All right, that's thrown me a little bit. Um, <laughs> that was, let's let's bring things back onto onto the football. Um, how did it affect the team when he left Collins? Do, do squads get over players like that of that quality leaving pretty quickly? In your experience, I guess when one player nah. leaves, another player is looking at an opportunity. That was sad. Yeah, yeah. I was sad. I was sad. I mean, I, I, I love, I love Steed as a player. He was, you know, you 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 miss a big quality in your dressing room as well. You know, like like what you guys said before. Even though he was very quiet, very reserved person, but his feet just did did a talk on the pitch. So to lose to lose that kind of quality in your, in, in the field, especially a, a, a team as Fulham. You need your top quality players, and when he left, he was a big miss for the for the football club. I remember uh, everybody was pretty sad, and obviously we spoke uh, spoke about it. But also on the other hand, we wish him good luck as well because you know he wanted to leave, he wanted to go to a to a different team and different uh, environment, and we wish him luck. But for Fulham, it was a big loss uh, to lose such, such a great player. Did he? Um, I was going to say, did he uh, when he? Did leave? Did anyone try and sort of step up and sort of fill his uh, fill his boots, as it were? Did they anyone try almost imitate him? So. Yeah, of course. I mean, it was also coming from the gaffer at the time as well. You know, like listen, you know, Steve is going to go, and not really one player. I think everybody has to kind of step up because obviously, when you lose that kind of a big impact in your dressing room, you know, everybody has to put a little bit more into it and try to fill his gap. But that was a very hard thing to do because. Steed at that time was, I wouldn't say fifty percent, but it was close to forty, fifty percent from the for the effort what we did. So, it was a big uh, was a big miss for everybody. Morgs, what's his best moment in a Fulham shirt for you? What's the standout memory you've got? Any particular moment or goal or anything? I think his assist for Boa in the Chelsea win is one that stands out to me. Um, obviously not having beaten them for however many years and not having beaten them since it was, you know, that through ball uh, was just, it was one of those eye of a needle passes mm. and just obviously the finish was great. Um, I just remember the game. I had the world's worst hangover because my birthday had been the day before. 
and I was really <laughs> struggling. And I just remember sort of watching that repeat and go, actually, that makes it all better. Um, yeah. And yeah, he did score. He scored a lot, of, uh, you know, some really good goals. He, uh, you know, set up a, a, yeah, a lot as well. But when you play a part in a winner against your local rivals in the, in that way as well, it was just, um, I think that was uh, certainly up there in my top top three. So yeah, particularly special. Oh, yeah, sure. yeah, that was another great game, by the way. That was another great game. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, the only time we've ever beaten Chelsea in the Premier League, isn't it? 15 years ago. 50, oh, God, it is, isn't it? Nice. Yeah. God, I'm old. Yeah, man. I know. <laughs> um, well, how about for you, Collins? Yeah, it, yeah, any... it is 15 years ago, yeah. Were there any standout moments for you, Collins? When you when you think of um, when you think of Steve Marbronk, what's the first thing you think of? First memory that you've got of something quality that he did? So many, so many. I think one of the big moments for me was obviously every training training with him was was a big privilege for me as a player because um, obviously I, I played two caps for the national team for Holland. But Steve was right up there with many, many players. I played and Percy and Fenistroy, but Steve's quality was right up there. I remember one game we played against Bolton away. I think he got two goals. One through ball from Brian McBride. Just the way he went around the goalkeeper was just outstanding. Um, but I think I think that was one of the games I really thought this this play is special. I think we won two no or two, sorry, I hope them two goals was just was not something else. And just the way he went around the goalkeeper was just outstanding really. And I thought, wow, wow. I just looked at him thinking this play is just something else. He's unbelievable. So uh now Steve is a very uh, special player. Very special player. So, Collins, you, been, you mentioned that you had a, your couple of caps to the national team. Um, were you surprised that Steed didn't get more international recognition? Um, obviously, he was competing with Zidane at the time for, uh, for that position, I guess. But you know, he only got called up to a, for a friendly, but never actually made it onto the pitch. And then that was it. He never pulled on a France shirt. Yeah, I was very much surprised. I think back in the days, it was kind of like harder if you kind of like played for a small club to to enter certain nations because now, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, Grilich obviously played for Aston Villa. He's in the pick. He's, he's get picked. Uh, you got a few players from Leeds who was picked from England as well. So I think now it's all, it's, it's, it's a lot more familiar just to get a call up. But back in the days, it felt like you really had to play for a top club to be involved. And um, I don't think that's fair steed. Um, for me, he was, he was probably one of the best attacking midfielder at, at, at the time in the Premier League. So I was always uh, kind of surprised he was not, you know, picked for, for, his, for his nation. And uh, But like you said as well, sometimes you have to be lucky with what kind of position, uh, what kind of players you have in front of you as well. Like you said, Zidane was not <laughs> was not a regular footballer, was he? So um, sometimes you have to be lucky as well to get picked. But yeah, for me, it was always a surprise because I remember... A few of the guys went obviously away with uh, international break, and he was always like there, and with a few other players training with under twenty threes, and you can always see he was down, he was disappointed, and you know he was one of the guys who was you know left, um, um, you know back in London, and he was never travelling. So yeah, you always see, you always saw in his face he was never happy. So that was kind of disappointed because for me he was outstanding footballer. 
he was he could those... have, I mean, he had, he, well, so I was going to say, he had the opportunity to play for Belgium, didn't he? Uh, but he turned it down thinking that he would uh, get a French call-up. And I guess, you honest, know, obviously he played to... under 21. But Yeah, but to be honest, I understand back in the days, Belgium was not as strong as now. And if I was if I was in Steed's shoes as well, I would I would I would fancy myself to play for France because mm. surely he was good enough. Definitely was good enough. He was he was proving it in the Premier League week in week out and scoring goals, giving assists. Not not just against the club, smaller clubs. He was he was scoring goals against the biggest club as well. So no, I I kind of I understood understood uh, stood him hundred uh, percent. He's the sort of player who you'd pay to watch. I think Tony Blair once said he was his favourite player when Tony Blair was um, British Prime Minister. Um, he uh, was once our joint Premier League top goal scorer along with Brian McBride, but was since overtaken by Clint Dempsey. And only Breda Hangeland and Aaron Hughes have won more Premier League games as a Fulham player than Steve Malbronk. He's, yeah... <laughs> An outstanding player. There's running out of superlatives to, to use to describe him. 32 goals in 172 appearances, spanning across five seasons. Morgs, rate his Fulham career out of 10. Oh, I'll, I'll give him an eight and a half, I think. It's uh, eight and a half. Actually, no, I'll give him a nine. It, he's, he was such a special talent. I think maybe, you know, it was just, it kind of, it was, uh, you know, it was, it petered out a bit. Uh, in terms of how he left stuff. So I can't give him the full 10. Uh, but from a quality point of view, I mean, he was certainly at that time one of the, the best players I've certainly seen in a Fulham shirt. Yeah, I think I think in context, when you, when you consider that players that we've given 10s to in the past are ones that uh, have, you know, taken us to the European Cup final, that sort of thing, then I think nine's fair. But... He took us into Toto Cup final. That's true. That is very yeah. true. Yeah, that's a big <laughs> one. Um, but in in terms of if if you were picking a Fulham team, the best Fulham Fulham Premier League eleven of all time, he'd be in it without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah. So um, yeah, I, I'd agree with you in saying nine. And Collins, I'll come to you and ask you a slightly different question. Where where would he rate in the list of players you've played with at Fulham? And how many players um, in any position on the pitch would be above him? On his position, nobody. Yeah. Um, for me, I would see him as a right winger slash left slash <laughs> maybe just mm. underneath the striker. So that free position, so attacking midfielder really. Mm. Um, maybe only two players might be slight above him, but that is just just because my bond with them. That was Etwi van der Sar, because yeah. he was Dutch and he's the one who kind of like really helped me settle in in, uh, in London, helped me settle in at the football club. Um, and another guy will be uh, Boamote. I had a very good click of him. And maybe one more that will be Papa Bubadiop because he was one of my best pals and, um, you know, I had such a great, great bond with him. So, you know, um, rest in peace, obviously, to my friend. Um, yeah. But, yeah, apart from that, yeah, Steve is right up there at the very, at very top because he, like I said before, I remember the first training... I was just like, who is this guy? I remember I went to Zap Nine. I was like, who is he? He was like, CJ, you haven't seen, you haven't seen anything, man. Trust me, this guy is just, he's another level. He said, he's a proper player. And uh, yeah, I saw him in my own eyes because he was special. Absolutely brilliant. Well, Collins, thanks ever so much once again for joining us. Absolute pleasure Thank to you. have you on as always. 
and we will speak to you soon. Maud, take care, mate, and let's pass this back to the main show. Fulham. All right, guys, uh, before we get to our score prediction and lineups, anything you change with the lineup, any sort of players that we should be watching out for in this game, Mr. Baldo? Yeah, I think the person that really sort of sort of worries me is uh, is Jack Harrison. He's uh, one of these players that's on the cusp of the England call of uh, the England scene. He's one of these, you know, on the everyone. I uh, saw the Athletic produce an article today where all their writers picked their England squad, and he figures, you know, at least on the cusp of a couple of them. So he's really been a danger this season. Six goals and four assists, um, all from out wide. You know what we'd give for any for any of our wingers to be producing. Uh, to be producing on that level, and also I gotta give I gotta give a shout out to um, uh, Mateus Click. Everyone everyone knows Marcelo Bielsa and his you know heavy, it's not heavy metal that Jurgen Klopp, but his but his Bielsa ball style with all the yeah. constant running. But Mateus Click is a midfielder who is in his thirties and has played because I, 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 I've covered this for work since Marcelo Bielsa took over. He has played in every single bar one of their league games, so he's just an absolute machine. And has their joint uh, uh, joint top assister with five. So the fact that he's managed to, you know, all this talk about the burnout, the fact that he's still managing to produce at that level, despite this is now the third season of Marcelo Bielsa's madness, just goes to show what a, you know, what a nightmare he can be. So he's definitely one we need to key in on because he can cause some problems. Mm. Um, I, I think you've got to look at, I, mean, I, I realise also, man, he's, a, he's a Man City lowly, isn't he, Jack Harrison? Did you mention that? Jack Harrison is, yeah, that he's one of these players. Like Thibaut Courtois went from Chelsea to Atletico Madrid for three years. Jack Harrison has done the same just because Pep Guardiola, for some reason, doesn't rate English talent. But yeah, he's he is a really he's a really good player. And you know, I I said last year he's one of these. He's a Premier League player in the Championship, and he's you know came settled in right at home in the in this league. So he's fantastic. I would I. I'm pretty sure there's an option for Leeds to sign him for something like 15 million. But if there was any way we could usurp that, I would love to have taken that. Yeah, fair enough. I've got to say, the one person I'm worried about, just because of the damage he did last time we faced, is his Helder Costa. I mean, he's having a good season for them. I mean, three goals and three assists. Two of those came against us earlier in the season, unfortunately, as I just said. But he hasn't actually played for the last game uh, for Leeds. And I don't think he's he's had a bit more sporadic time with them because at the moment it's Rafinha who's killing it isn't it uh Mr Stato what can you tell you about Rafinha yeah so you know he's kind of a big money throwing that Leeds made I think it, it might have been deadline day in August or it might have been you know the week of deadline day but it was quite a quite, quite a big signing not much was kind of known about him um he just came from the French League um this new Brazilian talent but he, he's kind of settled into this BLC team remarkably well he has, you know, five goals and five assists this year, which is, you know, pretty good going for your first season in the Premier League. Yeah. I think, you know, he's all the all the pundits and all the, you know, all the social media is kind of lighting up about him, saying how good he is. People say he will get a big move to one of the big clubs this summer. Yeah, um, and you know, it's it's the it's he scores goals, but he also creates a lot as well. So he has forty-seven key passes this season. Um, and only nine other players in the whole of the Premier League have made more key passes than him this season, which goes to show his effectiveness and kind of how much he can influence wow. games for Leeds. God. <laughs> he's yeah, he's very flary. I mean, I've noticed the media loving for him and I've seen the sort of links to potentially Manchester United and all those sort of things. So it, it, he looks like that sort of top six sort of player, doesn't he? I mean, he's sort of, he's a very sort of, 
moves in a very European way. That's probably is European, I guess, but that's just one of those things. But you've got Patrick Bamford. Um, he's you know, Brazilian. He, <laughs> is he Brazilian? I thought he's Portuguese. Uh, okay. Well, they speak they, Portuguese in Brazil. They do. He moves in a very <laughs> South American way. <laughs> oh, yeah. Let's just say that. Well done. Well done, J-Mac. Uh, Patrick Bamford, he's had a fantastic first season, hasn't he? I mean, what, what are your thoughts on him, uh, Borda? Yeah, Patrick Bamford, he's one of these players that, you know, everyone saw, you know, was he like a David Nugent sort of player? He can make it in the Championship, but can he uh, make it in the Premier League? And he's you know, answered his critics fantastically. This is, you know, 13 goals. I know some of it has been boosted by, you know, he got the hat-trick against Aston Villa. But even so, he's... 13 just, already? Uh, Sorry, that's mad. I would never have thought that. I would never in a million years thought that. Exactly, especially when you consider how many chances he missed in the, as you know, as I mentioned earlier, how many chances he missed in the championship last year. You think, oh, when you take in the, you know, the quality uh, factor into it as well, the fact that he's got this many is, you know, no, it's a credit, it's a credit to. Him, I'm sure, you know, being an ex Chelsea player, he's probably not thought of very fondly in many Fulham circles. But you've got to give him credit for, you know, answering what you know many critics this season. You know, Thirteen goals and five and five assists. We still don't know whether or not he's going to be playing. I know uh, Marcelo Bielsa did give a, uh, give something away in his press conference. It's sort of touch and go. But actually, no, I'm going to, I'm going to check that. And I, again, I covered this for work. I no, that's fine. This. Well, while, while, while you're checking, um, is there any defenders we should be watching out for in this game, Stato? I mean, we, we know about Robert Cock. We, we don't have enough of Cock. We just, let's, let's talk about um, what would you like to highlight from their defence? There's something that we should be highlighting. Sorry, yeah, I should so... I should also point I should also point out Bamford in his press conference. I got it confused because I know um, uh, Rodrigo and another couple of players are missing out, so I got confused. But Patrick Bamford looks as if he will be fit to play us. So there's so right. there's your problem guy right there. Right, and he's wind up merchant too. Um, go on, go on, Stetson. So yeah, just going back to the defense. Um, it's kind of hard to look at kind of who actually outright plays defense for them. Obviously, you've got their centre backs, Pascal Stroy, Diego Lorente. Liam Cooper, and then you've got Stuart Dallas and Alioski kind of play left back, but sometimes they don't. It's kind of hard to see. But their one constant is um, their club captain, Luke Eiling. And he's played every single game for Leeds so far this season. Um, and talking of England call-ups, there's rumours that he'll he's going to get a call-up, which um, is interesting. I mean, I think we, we kind of stacked him right back for the England set-up, so I, th- I think he's doing well to get into the, into the England scene. But... Hey, it's, it's a very, it's, it's a very. Sorry to interrupt you, but I can imagine Gareth Southgate sort of liking players from Leeds because it's that sort of style that he sort of must enjoy. You know that sort of. Yeah, definitely. Sort of, yeah, I can. And I think that. you know, given all the wide back options, there is Reese James, Trent, Alexander Arnold, um, Trippier. They're kind of all they're all very attacking minded wide backs, and Eiling's that more defensive one because he can slot in at centre back as well. Mm. Um, and yeah, like, like I said, he's played every game so far for Leeds this season. Um, and in fact, no Leeds player has made more tackles than him this season. He's made 76 in total, which kind of shows his defensive side to the game. Um, he's right. 29, nearing 30, I think. So, you know, getting in and call up this late, you know, it's, it's quite a late one. But if he's been playing well, then it's totally deserved. So, you know, he'll, he'll be the one kind of defender to look out for. And if he's playing on that right back slot, you know, it'd be a good battle between him and Lookman potentially. Yeah. I mean, it's usually a four-one-four-one formation that they play, isn't it? Um, I've, this we've spoken enough about Leeds now. Let's out what we would add to the team. You mentioned Lookman there. Uh, is there anything you would change from the lineup of Man City there, Bordeaux, for this game? It's quite. We should take it a lot more seriously, shouldn't we? 
Yeah, we should. And I preface this with what I said in the Manchester City review, but I'll say it again just because I believe how important it is. But, uh, Stato mentioned, or you know, we, we've all mentioned earlier in the show about their poor record from set pieces. Um, get Mitrovic in. That it, it is as simple as that. If ever there is going to be a chance where we can take advantage of a team from set pieces and get someone with who is an aerial threat, now is the time to do it. You know, I'm pretty sure. You know, we know that we're we're pretty stats driven uh, side at Fulham you know sometimes to the annoyance of many people with how you know with how stats work in the recruitment but they must know they must look at this and I'm pretty sure you know this show is not the only show that knows that Leeds are weak at set pieces I'm pretty sure the whole country knows that Leeds are weak at set pieces so we must know therefore what is the best chance we can do to get anything out of it that is to play Alexander Alexander Mitrovic so I don't know who you would replace if you want to go with you know, Mitrovic and Maja up top, or if you want to have Mitrovic and Caballero or Mitrovic and Lumber. However it works, you have to fit Alexander Mitrovic into into this team. It it is is quite it is quite as simple as that. Could you do Maja and Mitrovic for this game? I suppose you could, because usually my idea of thinking is that you, you wouldn't want them both on the pitch at the same time because you wouldn't want to tie them both out for next week's games. But if we've got an international break, I mean Stato, what how would you line us up? Would you have those two together playing off each other? Um, we could play them together, but I personally wouldn't go for that. Um, I would look to go back to kind of the four, four, one, one, four, three, three, whatever way you want to look at it. Take more control in the midfield, then. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd want to have Micho up top, um, as Builder mentioned, because of his physical presence, but also because he's been playing well. Like when he's he's coming on for these kind of cameo substitute appearances, and he does well in these appearances, and I think he deserves a start. And um, I think this could be the perfect game for him to kind of get a go and get his confidence back up. And um, then behind him, kind of in the 10, well, the attacking midfield, I'd go for Loftus Cheek again, yeah. kind of for that physical presence. He's a tall guy, again, set pieces. We need a tall kind of figure in there, so I'd, I'd play him. Probably go for Reed and Lamina in midfield. Um, you know, we need kind of those two midfielders for the for the, their energy, for their kind of defensive um positioning compared to Angisa, yeah. especially with kind of how kind of high attacking leads would be. We'd have Lookman out wide. I'd probably go for Cavalero on the other side, I'd say. Um, he's a bit more attacking than Bobby Reed. And also, I don't know if De- if Reed's kind of fit and back for us. Um, centre-backs, they you know, you know who they're going to be. And I'd go for the Kenny, Kenny Tete, Ola Aina, full-back combination. Um, Tete for his crosses and his delivery. And Aina, again, mainly for his physical presence. He's taller than Robinson. He can get into the box for corners and for set pieces. And... He links up quite well with Lookman on the left. I, I agree with you. I think I would trust Aina maybe a little bit more defensively than Robinson against the likes of Costa or yeah. Uh, Rafinha. Yeah, I, I, I hear you there. Um, anything you want to add there, Bordo, or do you want to go straight in with your score prediction on this? No, no, nothing. I, I would just like to say I am basically prefacing, I, you know, artists, we are basically prefacing our whole team selection on one factor, and that is set pieces. It's probably a bit of a risky. The team selection to make to base, to base your whole lineup based on one possible you might get one corner yeah, somewhere. The thing it's we never fucking score from. Exactly, it's a bit of a risk. But at this part of the season, we have to take risks. So why not? I mean, I, I wouldn't completely base that base that lineup just on the fact that they're poor set pieces. It's kind of based on the fact that these are the players that are playing well. Cavallero, he's not playing poorly if you put him on the wing at the moment. I yeah. think he's kind of doing better than Bobby Reed if we put him in the right mid slot. Mitrovic deserves to start. And Loftus-Cheek, he hasn't been playing poorly either. So I think they're all kind of worthy of their places to start in this team. 
All right, then. And what's your score prediction then, Paulo? I'm going to go for I've sort of prefaced this with what I said. I think we can get a 1-0 win out of this. I think it's going to be crucial that we get the first goal. Because if we if we go behind, I think that's I think that's going to be problems because they will pick us off at will on the counter attack because we're going to have to go and we're going to have to go and start chasing the game. So if we can get the first goal, hopefully through that mythical set piece. I think <laughs> our defense our defensive skills will be enough to sort of keep them at arm's length for the for the rest of the game, and then we may even be able to cause them some problems on our own counter attack. So I'm going to go for a one 0 win. All right, I'm I'm going to go for a two one. Um, I think we're going to score first. I think we're going to have a, a scary moment um, after after half time, and I think we're going to score from a header with Mitrovic at the end. It's it's very precise. It's it's probably not going to happen, but it's just what I want to happen. Stato, what are your score predictions, man? Um, based on the fact that fifty percent of Leeds losses this season have come from more than two go from two or more goals, I think we're just going to go for a two nil win. Um, oh, nice. You know. I think we're at the point now where we've got a quite a well-established team. We're starting to get points. We've kind of come through a hard run of tough teams. Um, our home form, obviously, it's a bit of a worry. But if you look at our kind of the home fixtures we've had, it's been against good teams. So in, in, in games you weren't necessarily expecting to win, this yeah. game is one of those games. Where you, one of the games you'd expect to win, regardless of if it's home or away. Unfortunately, we're home. Um, I think we're going to contain them well. I think we'll. You know, we'll grab a go and then I think we'll grab another one later on when they're trying to push and kind of get that equaliser and that'd be one win of that'd be one win down and yeah, three more to go to survival. Hopefully. Well, well hopefully. I mean it would be great. If we get three points, let's just imagine in this lovely hypothetical world that we get three points on Friday night. Uh, a very interesting game, uh, a slightly terrifying game now, is uh, Brighton versus Newcastle at eight PM on Saturday night. What result do we want here, Paul, though? Because I i don't even like looking at it or even thinking about it at the moment. Brighton's result really pissed everyone off last weekend and, and, and did Newcastle's annoying header equaliser from LaSalle. I'd just like to know your, your thoughts. Yeah, it's an interesting one. It's do you want a draw to sort of keep them both down there or do you want Brighton to win to plunge Newcastle even deeper or even a Newcastle win would you know keep Brighton down there but would increase the gap? It's a bit of a weird one. And I think a lot of it will probably be dictated by what happens by what happens on Friday night. Like if mm. we can win, if we can win, then we go above Newcastle. In which case, we're all piling on for it. We're all piling on for a Brighton win. But if we were to lose, then you probably say, mm, let's just keep the focus on Newcastle that last game of the season. In which case, a Brighton win wouldn't be so bad. Keep Newcastle down. If it's a draw then you probably want to draw. A lot of it's going to be dictated by what happens on Friday night. So I think it's a little bit too early. Uh, it's, it's too early for me to sort of say what I think an ideal result would be. Out of those teams, Baldo, straight back at you, which one do you think is likelier to be our rival from this? It's Newcastle still for you, right? Or is it Brighton? I will, I, yeah, I will, I will say Newcastle just for one, one, key, one key thing, and that's, Bright, and that's Brighton's goal difference, which is... Um, we're on minus fourteen. They're on minus seven. And right. given that we okay. don't, given that we don't exactly score in bunches, I don't think we're going to be able to catch them. So if we if it goes into the last game of the season and we, you know things work out, that that massive goal difference is going to be a huge advantage. So I think purely purely for that, I think it's still going to be Newcastle. And finally, on to you, Stato. May I have the last word. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah. So obviously, last week it was a bit annoying that. 
Brighton got the win, Newcastle got the draw, and it's annoying that this game's coming around because it's quite a key fixture for us. But I think, I think if you know, we're, we're, you're naive, we're naive to kind of assume to think that Newcastle and Brighton won't pick up points because they're going to. It's 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 inevitable. It's going to happen. It's not going to be a case that they're just going to lose every single game between now and the end. Yeah. Um, it's just the way it's going to have to be, and it's it's going to be a, and from this point onwards, you know, to the end of the season, it's going to be a nervous you know, couple of months for us because that's just the way it is. If we're in a relegation battle, um, and you know, I, I, like Bull, I mentioned, I'd like to think it'll be Newcastle towards the end that are our main rivals. It's good to keep as many teams in the relegation mix as possible. It gives more variety, it gives us more options. Um, but ultimately, you know, it's. I think it is coming down to, to between us and Newcastle. Yeah. And it's also it's crazy to think there's only like nine games to go. I mean, where's that come yeah. from? I don't know. Twenty-seven points left to play for. It's incredible. Uh, but, but you know, twenty-seven points left to play for, and I believe, truly, I do. We can get nine in the opening three, uh, the next three games, starting with Friday night. All right, guys. Well, I'm going to leave it there. I think that was a, a cheerful thing to end on. So I'll 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 call it there and. Um, Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you very much for listening at home. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about us. And I hope you're listening to this with a lovely Guinness Paddy Days hangover. See you soon.